This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. everybody or whenever the i always say good morning whenever the hell you're listening to this hello i am sam lacrosse this is the do not listen to this podcast thank you for being on again with me today can you dig it i can today is i'm recording this on july 10th which is a saturday big day big day today from a couple of reasons first i ran eight miles this morning i've never run more than eight miles in my entire life i'm training for a new fitness fundraising event that i'll probably tell you guys about later even though you probably don't come here for that if you come here at all so i mean you probably don't really give a shit but anyway i just figured i'd so I'm hurting pretty bad from that. The I run on the insides of my feet, I think. So the insides, which is not good, so you should not do that. And uh, the insides of my feet are really hurting. I think I'm going to have to rip some blisters off my feet later in the day. But, you know, I'll spare you the, the nastiness of that. Also, big fight night tonight. UFC 264 is tonight. Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier, the trilogy will conclude tonight. I'm very excited. I will probably end up buying the fight now that I can live in an area where buying a fight is feasible on a monthly basis. So... Uh, big fight between uh, Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier. Uh, I'm a big Conor McGregor fan. I know a lot of people who are big Conor McGregor fans. I don't know how it's going to go tonight. I'm thinking Poirier is going to win because of how bad he waxed Conor in the last fight. Additionally, you have Gilbert Burns, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson going tonight. Gilbert Burns is, I don't know if his, like I seriously think his career got seriously injured, if not ended by Kamaru Usman in UFC 262, no, not 262, like two, whatever that one was early, earlier in the year when he got his ass whooped by Kamaru Usman, his teammate, and Kamaru Usman asserted himself as arguably the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world. So it's going to be very interesting because he's going to go after Stephen Wonderboy Thompson tonight, who's basically the South Carolinian, South Carolinian, South Carolinian, Israel Adesanya light that is going on. He is a striker. He is a karate guy going against Gilbert Burns, who's mainly a guy who is a grappler, Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it's always interesting to watch that kind of fight. Sean O'Malley is fighting tonight. I've never watched him fight personally before, but I've seen his highlights, and the guy's really entertaining, so looking forward to watching that. Greg Hardy, who I hate and fucking despise because he uses semi-automatic weapons to threaten women, is fighting tonight, so I hope Tui Tui Vasa kicks his ass tonight. So it's going to be a nice... Nice, relaxing fight card tonight. I'm going to order a pizza. I, mean, I, have, I actually have a bottle of Proper 12 about five feet to my right, so I will be indulging in some Proper Number 12 Irish whiskey tonight. But anyway, we are not here to talk about UFC. Maybe that's for another time. I know I've mentioned it a couple times, but I'm really excited for this fight, if you couldn't tell. So what we are going to be talking about today is a topic that I believe 
is very, very enlightening for a lot of people. It certainly was for me. And it only recently came up because in this blog, I have tried to be very, very, I would say, tolerant to people. I try to come at things from an open mind. You guys can probably guess my biases in a lot of things. And what I found out recently, especially by reading a book, which I will tell you about, is that it's really not that... I think it's actually impossible now to be tolerant on any issue because human beings in our inner human, most human nature are not tolerant people. And we like to think we are because, you know, tolerance is the hot button issue of the day. We want to be tolerant for this group of people, this group of people, and that's all fine and good. We can have good intentions to most people, and I believe the vast, vast, vast majority of people do. However, it's not that simple, like anything in the world that's worth exploring that's with this step. So from now on, we should think about these things more, and this is what this post is about, so here we go. I once said that instigators shall inherit the earth. The internet never forgets, mind you. I stand by that fact, not only because it's in the intro of this post, but it will provide an important window in a cru into a crucial conversation. It is one that has been had an incalculable amount of one that has been had an incalculable amount of times, especially in the past year and a half. However, I don't think anyone got it right, at least completely. Enter Michael Knowles. Michael Knowles is, to put it mildly, a firebrand. Those instigators I was talking about earlier, he fits that category almost too snugly for comfort. Knowles, a conservative political commentator for the Daily Wire, is no stranger to controversy. He's been booed off campuses numerous times. Several people have called him dangerous. Even Fox News won't have him on anymore after that whole calling Greta Thunberg a mentally ill child snafu. But Knowles loves it. He feeds off people's hatred of him and uses it as fuel for his own dynamism. He's incredibly and purposely pompous. He's ridiculously good-looking. He smokes cigars, drinks expensive bourbons and whiskeys, dresses in annoyingly nice attire, and constantly rubs his opponent's noses in the fact that he was once a Yale student that had a brief career in Hollywood before he stuck it to them by roasting every aspect of their culture. Like our friend Tucker Carlson, he, did, he takes great pleasure in acting as the great equalizer of the left's vile attitude towards the two of them. Take his entry into the public foray, for instance. After he was brought into the Daily Wire fold, he released his first book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. The caveat? The book was blank. It didn't contain a single word. The entire book, all that blank paper, was just a massive troll. It was hilarious, no matter what side of the political aisle you reside on. The book sold 60,000 copies in the first week, rocking to number one on the Amazon bestseller list. Then President Trump even, even tweeted about it, quote, a great book for your reading enjoyment, end quote. Soon, Knowles was given the third podcast on the network after the Ben Shapiro show and the Andrew Clavin show, which became a daily syndicated show, meaning it was broadcasted every day amongst a lot of different networks in 2020. Knowles capitalized on that momentum, using every moment of his podcast to excoriate Democrats on every single issue. Knowles, only being 31 at the time of this writing, pretty unbelievable as that sounds, soon became one of the most popular conservative icons of the youth of America. His momentum ever rising, he began to assert himself even more. I personally think he's the most conservative voice in the Daily Wire, and for a company that's owned and operated by the aforementioned Ben Shapiro, as I said earlier, that's saying a lot. After the second round of impeachment against Donald Trump, Knowles then partnered with Senator Ted Cruz, another darling of the left's eye, to form another podcast called The Verdict. His profile ever rising, he then announced about uh, a year after, I would say, that he was writing a book, a timely book, one that he viewed would completely flip everything on its head and make his opponents beg for mercy. On June 22nd of this year, Knowles released Speechless, his debut book of words. He had hyped the book tirelessly for months on his podcast, another one of his war tactics to stir up both controversy and publicity. 
I pre-ordered the book, half expecting to see a cringy diatribe of half-witted insults and lowbrow pot shots that unfortunately are the only means to have political discourse in our time today. However, what I got was something else entirely. It was over the top, but definitely not in the way that I originally thought it was going to be. Knowles' book was almost a book of references. The book itself was almost 400 pages long, but the last 150-ish pages are a combined glossary of politically correct jargon, which number in the dozens, references, which number in the hundreds, and a works cited page, which is, which is close to a work of 100 works of literature, ancient biographies, you know, papers, all that other shit. Knowles made sure to squeeze every drop of juice from this orange, leaving no stone unturned as he delivered what he thought was to be a definitive blow to his enemies. It was incredibly overwhelming. I had to think my way through almost every chapter. It's hard when you have a tub subtext with a number in the back of what seemed like every sentence. The topic of the book, as one might have guessed from the title, is speech. That debate I was mentioning earlier, this is what I was talking about. So much has been sped about, said about speech recently that it's, get, it's getting exhausting. Hate speech, more speech, less speech, free speech. All of those phrases are starting to get so boring and old that I've almost forgotten that it's one of our primary constitutional rights. Almost. With all the mindless bantering and pilfering of the opposition, Noel saw an opportunity to do something that none of our political class buffoons thought to do. Make an intelligent argument. Some might say that Michael Knowles might be annoying and over the top, but he's far from stupid. The main point of his book was that all the arguments going around on, quote, free speech right now indirectly serve the antithesis of what they're trying to protect. Because there is no such thing as free speech, he explains. It's the classic nature of whores a vacuum argument. Nothing involving the exchange of human dialogue can be value neutral because humans are not value neutral. Therefore, he explains, quote, free speech does not exist. It never has, and it never will, as long as the humans who speak it continue to be flawed, which they always will. So what is the solution? If there is no free speech, what's to keep us from tearing each other apart? Well, according to Knowles, we have to find some kind of common ground and a set of values, something Americans have had a tremendously hard time doing as of late, if you haven't noticed. Only when we can take a stance on something that we effectively... Only when we take a stance on something can we effectively move forward to capitulating communication with one another once again. In his own words, quote, We use language to convey what we understand about the world and how we want to live in it. The process of persuasion and education that ensues from the act of speech constitutes politics. If we are to master our political future, we must not merely demand the risk to speak. More importantly, we must have something to say. End quote. These are powerful and true words, ideology put aside. A house divided cannot stand, and we're a country divided, and country divided cannot either. We've already tried that once. That was the Civil War, if you can remember that. I would say it was a pretty miserable failure. But what does that mean in terms of us, the individual? If we cannot change the world around us that without first changing ourselves, something we've talked about at length, then what do we do need to first change about ourselves? This will be an unpopular opinion, and one that I've gotten wrong frequently on this blog, as I said earlier, up until now. Our objectivity. There are a lot of people, myself very much included, who pride themselves in being, quote, objective, who say that they're coming at something from a detached and neutral mindset. But that's all a bunch of bullshit, and we know it. Because we as humans possess higher-order thinking from the rest of the animals, we can calculate and organize our own value hierarchies. This comes with very numerous upsides, but also a lot of downsides. While it allows us to give ourselves a sense of identity and way of interacting within the world, it also opens up for some of the current tribalistic tendencies we are seeing pop up all over the place. As long as we have values, we will have no objectivity. All these people preaching, quote, acceptance and, quote, tolerance are liars. 
They're not doing it with malicious intent, most likely, but they're certainly not accurately portraying themselves. This is not a problem, though. We are in a very intellectually diverse society, where we have every kind of philosophy and way of life under the sun living in America. I want people to have values, even if they differ from mine. And you should, too. Or else we wouldn't be living in a society where so many wonderful breakthroughs happen, as you mentioned in last, uh, the last post I wrote about innovation and invention. Diversity, when implemented correctly in a society, can yield tremendous benefits in terms of innovation and progress, like I mentioned earlier, that can make our lives better for a number, large number of standpoints. But diversity in and of itself is not a value. It is an outcome that is provided by a more baseline understanding, such as that person and that group's collective values. However, we have now come to a dichotomy, one of individual versus group values. This is a complicated conundrum. How must one act within their own sphere while at the same time learning to coexist within society? This is something that has perplexed even those of the strongest minds and wills for generations. Those people who have said they don't care about what people think, that was bullshit too. You have to care what people think. Remember our talk about Jean Piaget and games. If no one wants to play with you, you're going, to have a, you're going to have a really fucking hard time existing within the world. Our generation has an immense problem with this. We all want to be our own individual person, as we should be. But when things get tough, we tend to fold and fall into the crowd to keep up our orthodoxy. In his book, Knowles has an unlikely target for this critique. His own political base. A recurring theme, perhaps the dominant theme, outside of the one we just discussed, in Speechless, is Knowles mercilessly roasting his fellow conservatives over the coals for letting liberals rewrite speech patterns, upend his beloved traditional value structures, and reassert their own ones to create, to take control of the language. Control the language, control the culture. Control the culture, control the institutions. Control the institutions, control the population. It's a marvelously effective strategy, and incredibly hard to execute. But this is not an issue of conservative and liberal, in my opinion. Both are guilty within our current shit mess of a dialogue between people of competing orthodoxies, like Knowles mentioned earlier. Like most things, I believe that it is a combined coalition of all ideologies who seek to permeate their underlings in an essence of control through similarly bad values. The veil of objectivity is a crude shroud ripe for exploitation, and those who choose to wield it have done a miraculous job at doing so. So what's the point? The point, dear listener, is to improve. The point is to be able to fight the lust and pull of objectivity to both stand for something inside of yourself and inside of our culture. At the pace we're going, we won't have the time to act before we end up ripping each other to shreds anyways. So, we might as well get started now before we do some irrevocable damage. Knowles, no matter what you think of him, was right. Both man and beast make sounds, but only one is capable of speech. If values are the genesis of speech, then we need to cover the whole spectrum. First, we will be looking at how our values make the world inherently intolerant. Next, we will look at how we can use our selective intolerance that we provide through our values to successfully coexist with our other non-objective citizens. Finally, we will look at how to then translate that into principles which to improve your own life and our relationship with the world. So crack open a box of cigars and Speechless by Michael Knowles, immediately put Speechless by Michael Knowles away, and read the rest of my fucking post. I'm not angry. I'm just trying to make a make a joke. It, it's hard to tell. It's hard to do this shit when no one's here with you. So I'm sorry. Yeah, that's something I've <laughs> thought about a lot recently. Like, am I actually being funny, or am I just like trying to like laugh at myself the whole entire time? I really can't tell. So I mean, if you get, I don't know, shoot me an email or don't shoot me an email. I don't really give a shit, honestly. <laughs> Anyways, last Monday. The social media giant Pinterest made a big announcement. 
In a statement on the company's Instagram page and reported by, as reported by Yahoo, Pinterest instituted a ban on, quote, weight loss ads, language, or imagery, end quote. AKA, there would be nothing on Pinterest related to improved health in regard of weight, a very common indicator of overall physiological health. This is a bizarre thing, even more so that the company had already banned, quote, any promotion of dangerous weight loss products or claims, end quote, whatever the fuck that means. Maybe they think their users are stupid. It honestly wouldn't be that shocking, but that's beside the point. The social media mob loved what Pinterest did. They praised it for how, quote, inclusive and, quote, welcoming it was. One user wrote a viral comment underneath about how, quote, diet culture had provoked reading disorder. Simultaneously, model Tabria Majors, who was on the thicker side of the spectrum, not by much, I would say, however, was announced as a new brand ambassador for the company. This was also lauded. Majors was called, quote, brave for this several times, I have no doubt. Loads of fat women loved what Tabria Majors did. She got a lot of love for it. However, there's only one problem. Tabria Majors is beautiful. Tabria Majors is an absolutely gorgeous woman. She is a model, after all. So is Ashley Graham, another, quote, plus-size model who gets paid millions of dollars to complain how some people in the world don't think she's attractive when there are 10 millions of people that do. What most would give to be in such a privileged situation where that level of narcissism can be stomached, I can't even imagine. In any case, all compliments aside, I don't want to shit on Tabria Majors or Ashley Graham or any, quote, plus-size model like them. However, let's call them what they are, models. That's the important thing. They're beautiful people. Only beautiful people can be models. Them weighing in on this issue isn't the problem, at least directly. The problem is that their sentiment is detached from reality, like many in their position. There are very few people who are as beautiful as Tabria Majors, at least to some degree. She isn't fat, neither is Ashley Graham. One unfortunate thing that I've come to realize with having a lot of female friends is that no woman, woman is safe from insecurity. Whether they're skinny as a rail or fat as a cow, everyone has always seems envious of something. It really is a terrible curse. Variety is the spice of death, after all. And I like thick women anyway, so trust me, Tabria Majors is no beef with me whatsoever. Pinterest and Tabria Majors were lauded almost universally by the poor folks who are mentally enslaved to this type of attention-grabbing behavior for their, quote, inclusivity, for their, quote, tolerance. They were put on a pedestal as a beacon, a reminder of what we should all be striving for. But this is wrong. Pinterest and Tabria Majors were lauded almost universally by the poor folks who were mentally enslaved to this type of attention-grabbing behavior for the exact opposite reason of what most people claimed. They were lauded because they were completely, irrevocably, and matter-of-factly intolerant. They made an incredibly tolerant, intolerant statements and blasted them out for the whole world to see. In another arena with the same intentions, they might have been called bigots. This type of statement might seem incredibly backwards. I get it. But before you slam me for being hashtag intolerant, let's make our routine trip to the dictionary. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word, quote, the word tolerance is, quote, the allowable deviation from a standard, end quote. That should be an automatic buzzword. We just made a whole podcast about it, remember? If you do remember, let me refresh you. A standard is simply the bare minimum of what something is supposed to do. A car is supposed to get you from point A to point B. A meal is supposed to sate your hunger. A glass of water is supposed to quench your, thir quench your thirst. Pinterest, in promoting, quote, body positivity, which we all should know now is not body positivity at all, enforce a new standard to their community of users. The standard? Obey our commands, or you and or your content get removed from the platform. This might sound like a harsh line to draw in the sand. 
rephrase the political ideology. It might be appropriate for, as a statement from a totalitarian government from an alternate universe. Because it is both. It's the Knowles paradox in real time. The only tolerance Pinterest will allow is the tolerance that complies with their rules. If you don't comply with them, that's fine. Their intolerant asses will kick you and your salad recipes to the curb. Pinterest made an incredibly enlightening statement when they released that presser. It announced that it did not care about a good portion of the world, particularly women, who have been psychologically proven to be more affected by this kind of stuff than men. Post a pic of you in a bikini that you're proud of? We don't give a fuck. You could harm the people that we pander to. Throw up a workout routine? How dare you? You can make someone not love themselves in that moment. Upload said aforementioned salad recipe? What the hell? Don't you know that there are fat women out there that will get upset about you living a healthy lifestyle? Shut up and obey. Now, before you actually accuse me of being some kind of fat-phobic extremist, I know I'm walking a thin but I'm ching line here, so stay with me. That was clever, you gotta admit. Let's flesh this out even more. Pinterest did not make that statement about favoring the unhealthy, did not just make a statement about favoring the unhealthy population over the healthy population. They made a statement about their values. In appealing to that group of people, they projected out into the world that they valued their input to the company, and the dollars that come with it, no doubt, over the input of the other set of the population. In their hierarchy of values, Pinterest values unhealthy people more than healthy people. It could be for a lot of reasons. It could be that unhealthy people resort to looking at social media more, which will send their attention economy skyrocketing. It could be that unhealthy people are looking for a safe place in the internet to go away from those evil healthy people who ruin everything by simply existing as they are. It could be that they create a culture of avoidance, where people go to get away from the real problems that they know they have, but still don't acknowledge. It's very likely that they did so for some combination of the three. Pinterest, and other companies and communities like them, want people to feel welcome to express themselves. They want to feel like they're included. But only if they toe their intolerant line. To be fair and give Pinterest a break, let's go to the social media example on the other complete opposite end of the spectrum. Parler. Parler, the social media company that was largely composed of conservatives who hated big tech that was recently taken off of the operating system of, I believe, both Google or Android or whatever the one called, the, whatever the service is owned by Google, the phone owned by Google, and Apple, fought to become the platform that respected, quote, free speech. The only problem was, they lied too. Parler and their largely homogeneous user base debunked their own very mission statement by their actions. In the words of DJ Khaled, congratulations, you played yourself. Parler was open-minded, sure, when it came to the people who expressed their loyalty to their mission statement. Could you imagine what would happen if Rachel Maddow or Joy Reid or Chris Cuomo or Joy Behar got a Parler account and started free-speeching all over the damn place? Yikes, I don't think they'd last very long. So what does this mean? Does this mean we're all bigots? That we're all being composed entirely of hatred and awfulness towards one another like a lot of the radical Marxists say we are? Are we enshrined to forever oppress one another, to slander and pillory one another in order to beat the other in submission for their, quote, intolerance? Of course not. Unlike the people at the 1619 Project of the Proud Boys, we're not going to do this type of headassery here. To prove it, let's go back to the tech example. In the 1990s, a bill was passed by Congress called the Communications Decency Act, one of the largest pieces of technological legislation that ever went into the modern culture. Currently, the biggest part of the Communication Decencies Act that is being debated is called Section 230. Section 230, in summary, states that a technology that declares itself a, quote, platform where people can post things cannot act as a, quote, publisher and edit that content or the person that is providing that content for them. 
if you've been paying attention to some of the stuff that's been going on in this arena, and thank God for you if you haven't, this has been easily the biggest debate about the regulation of technology companies. Increasingly, big tech has been violating the act by acting as publishers, not platforms. Deplatforming wasn't even a concept a couple years ago. Now it's a standard term. Conservatives generally want more things to stay up. Liberals generally want more things taken down. And you can see why the clusterfuck has taken place. The traditional argument of, quote, tolerance has been that human beings become platforms and not publishers. But this is not possible. The existence of values make it so. As long as human beings have the ability to prioritize, nothing will ever be, quote, neutral. Speech will never be free. People will never have agendas. They will always have their versions and their stories. Or people will always have agendas, rather. They will always have their versions and their stories. Corporations will, people will, nonprofits will, political parties will, your wife will, and everyone who has anything remotely to do with being a living, breathing organism will too. So, instead of trying to be platforms, let's all just do ourselves a big favor and admit that we're individual publishers. We have values based on how we organize them and conceptualize them based on our own experiences and corresponding actions. The world is a very intolerant place, and we are all culpable in its existence. But this is not a bad thing. Being intolerant for the right reasons can be a blessing for both you and all the people around you. I've said many times before that I think having different values from one another is a good thing in a healthy society, as long as we have some kind of overarching values that bind us together. We must be generally tolerant, but specifically intolerant towards ourselves and our own value structures and how to interact in the world. This causes a certain dichotomy of tolerance, one where we must be selective about one way, but general in another. It is navigating that dichotomy where we will turn next. Can you guys hear me drinking, by the way? I know you can't respond to me in real time, but I always wondered that. Speaking takes a lot out of your throat, and I need to, need to quench my own thirst a little bit here. So... Jesse Pinkman remains to this day my favorite live-action television character of all time. My heart will, first and foremost, always belong to Zuko, so that will never change. <laughs> the creation of his evolution by Vince Gilligan and the crew of Breaking Bad will be something that I don't think will ever be recre recreated. But Jesse is not my favorite character ever for the reasons that one might think. Jesse Pinkman is my favorite character ever because of his impossibility. His inability to heal himself and his own trauma and fix up his life is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. Jesse Pinkman is so broken, so hopeless, so lost, that only a person that like him can reveal the flaws about our own human nature. And none did so more than what I believe to be the greatest scene of television I've ever seen. In the season four episode, Problem Dog, Jesse is dealing with the aftermath of coping with the murder of a man that he was forced to commit on behalf of his partner, Walter White. He does so by relapsing on drugs, delving further into the meth business, and expanding their list of customers. He does the latter by going back to his old Narcotics Anonymous meetings where he was in rehab, or when he was in rehab, and preying on them by selling meth at the very meetings these poor folks are looking to escape from. It's truly a diabolical act. I couldn't believe AMC let them put it on the show, but shout out to them for sticking to their guns and allowing them to do it. In this episode, Jesse's spirit is close to fully breaking, and he goes to the program in hopes that he can find some sort of escape. For the first time, he speaks honestly, admitting that he committed murder in front of the group by saying that he killed a, quote, dog that was a problem for him, which is obviously an allegory for the man that he murdered. Just a problem. He didn't hurt anybody, didn't do anything dangerous, nothing. 
Just something that was an inconvenience for him. Jesse did not want to, but he had to in order to save his life. He doesn't tell them that, but that's the kind of excuse that he gives. A woman at the meeting, understandably, begins to harshly reprimand him for this. Jesse takes it in stride, feeling incredibly glad that someone is finally telling him that what he did was wrong. But the group leader thinks otherwise. The group leader immediately tells the woman to be quiet and to not judge Jesse by com for committing a horrible act. Jesse, seizing the opportunity to finally vent, asks him simply, why not? Taken aback, the group leader says that judgment and self-hatred are not conducive to healing from trauma. Jesse's will then snaps. He can't take the lies and the broken logic anymore. He then goes on a rant about that judgment. What's the point of doing anything? Why even do things at all? If you just do things and nothing happens, what does it all mean? Why not have consequences for actions? The group leader pushes back further, telling him that beating the hell out of himself would not allow him to improve. Jesse, his guilt and shame turning to rage, slams the group leader back personally, asking him if he forgives himself, who once admitted to backing over his daughter with a truck while high on junk. The group leader, finally, starts to display some disapproval. And then Jesse goes in for the kill. He then tells them that the only reason he comes to these events is to sell the recovering addict's crystal meth. He menacingly returns to the group leader. Quote, I made you my bitch. Do you accept that? End quote. No, the group leader replies, defeated. Jesse, finally satisfied, relaxes his shoulders, says, about time, and leaves, never to return. We have always had standards for speech. Those standards are our values. They're outlined in the founding documents of our country, in company boardrooms, and at dinner tables around the world. Whether they are enforced or not, or or whether they are enforced or not depends entirely on the strength of those values. In addition, your personal values dictate how you speak. How you speak, depending on your values, makes you intolerant to other values that contradict yours. However, this must not mean that we can carelessly impose our own values and that of others just because we can. While I do believe that we must have things in common to get along in society, we must not remain so close-minded about our own values that we should not respect others and how they carry themselves. The only thing that you should care about for standards of speech and tolerance is if they should upend the thing that binds us all together. Whether you agree with it or it makes you upset is completely and utterly irrelevant. What made Jesse Pinkman's speech so powerful is that it totally unravels the false notion that it is okay to not have standards for what people do, that it is not okay for actions to not have consequences attached to them. Jesse Pinkman successfully, and most refreshingly, flipped the means of tolerance on its head. He did not do this in a way that is constructive to his well-being, certainly, but it completely unveiled the bullshit for all of us to see. The reason why I'm so pessimistic about a lot of the positivity nonsense that's out there now is because it does not focus on the real problem. Happiness may be a convenient solution, but it does not mean that, is the, that it is the right solution. Sometimes things need to suck before they can get better. We can't get, all get around a campfire and sing kumbaya. We need to disagree, or complacency can set in from within the culture. Once complacency sets in, anyone can come in and hijack it from us. We need to, therefore, use our selective intolerance to successfully coexist with other non-objective citizens. And I would say the first thing to do in order to make the most of this opportunity would be to give up the notion that you can please everyone. This is a common thing that people say, but like most colloquialisms like it, it is much harder to do than to say, particularly when you are that person in question. It's the whole human beings being social animals things makes it even harder. 
I've been studying a lot of Russell Brand and his work recently, and I found it incredibly interesting, if nothing else. One thing that Brand says drives people to addiction, one of his expertises being a multi-time addict himself, is the need for connection to something greater than themselves. I believe this to be accurate. However, Brand also reveals an unfortunate truth. When that connection to something pure is not met, something impure begins to fill that void, i.e. addiction. Similarly, earlier this week, Colin Cowherd opened his show with a monologue on mental health and loneliness in America. Sure, it's not sports, and he can be a cornball on occasion, but Colin Cowherd is a very genuine person, I would say. He cares about people, and about what he does, and how he talks to people in his audience. He treats them with decency and with respect. And he said some very true things. We go too fast. We crave attention from everyone. We desire it more than we desire for our own mental well-being and satisfaction. And he's right. We whore ourselves out for the validation of other people in order to feel connection. While a rational goal, this is not the appropriate response in order to get that level of connectivity. Remember the rule of everything and nothing. Someone who chooses to do everything instead does nothing. In the words of Emperor Palpatine, you must choose. You must be able to delineate what you value and how to best serve that purpose in order to get you what you want out of, out of your life. In getting rid of the ability to please everyone, it will spare you the pain of not working to anyone and everything because of your need for validation. We need very few things in this world. Detachment, in most cases, is the key to achieving contentment because you force yourself to only care about the things that truly serve your own purpose. One thing that you definitely do not need within yourself is the need for other people to notice how great you are all the time. Because most likely you're not, at least to them. Most people don't give a shit about what other, what other people spend their lives doing. If they do, they're losers. That's a them problem, not a you problem. Obsessively following the actions of other people like some kind of fucked up reality show is a very poor way to live your life. Living through other people is, very accurately, wasting and disrespecting your own life by not giving it the proper attention. In addition, this method will also allow you to forgive others for when they have values that are different from yours. If there is a point of emphasis for what is causing all the craziness in the culture right now, it would be this notion here. No one can live and let live anymore. No. We must destroy. We must dogpile. We must fight to assert dominance. But dominance in a culture where we are prided on collaboration should not be sought after. It's a downright shitty value in a democratic society, and we should try our best on the individual level to not have it permeate the greater collective. Following that, you, must, you also need to take a more constructively aggressive approach for dealing with people whose values are different than yours. We're all intolerant towards one another, so what's the difference anyway? If you see someone with a different set of values whom you come in conflict, conflict and or contact with a lot, Engage that person in them. Ask them questions. Why do you believe that? Have you thought about that, how that could make someone feel? What's the reasoning behind that? What's the genesis of that thought? A lot of people think that pushing back on things is wrong. In fact, it is not wrong. Stress testing things, whether that be institutions or banks or relationships or anything in between, is a good and necessary thing to do, should it be constructive. You shouldn't just wildly assume things just to fuss about something that is individually pissing you off. But if you have reasoning behind the way that you feel about that person or thing or whatever it is, you have an obligation to someone who is affected by it to insightfully question that person or thing about whatever it is you have issue with. Constructive instigation, whether you'd like to admit it or not, generally leads to more good than bad in most cases. Sometimes you're wrong and you miscalculate and you can embarrass yourself or hurt somebody. These are the unfortunate realities of life, and that is why you must be careful in that regard by taking too much as much personal responsibility as possible. Remember, 
not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. When questioning something as personal and vulnerable as another person's values, you must be careful, particularly when there's some, if there's someone you respect. You must open up with empathy and your own personal vulnerability in order to truly understand why they feel a certain way. Push back in a way that you can meet them where they are and further understand them before you go and try to make an argument why yours is better. Because there are situations where, if you have good values, they will triumph over ones that are not as robust. When this happens, or when it happens to you, make sure you do it with grace, no matter what side you're on. We need more good values than bad, so when they surface, you should respect their merit. When good values are exposed, the person holding the bad values is also simultaneously exposed. Then, if they are a self-aware person, as we all should try to be, they should force themselves to adopt new ones if their beliefs truly change. Instigation and intolerance are the only ways in which they, these can be exposed and changed for the better, which will benefit the culture at large. Finally, this will allow you to further develop your own values in order to fend off your own embarrassment, further your arguments and beliefs, and assert them in the world. This might seem self-explanatory, but if values require one thing, it would be confidence. Confidence is not built on simple assumptions and falsehoods. That would be arrogance, a cousin of ignorance, and you should know by now that we don't do that in this medium. Strong values are not good just for the individual. Strong values are good for the society at large, particularly in times like these where the values that surround us seem to be more fragile, stupid, and weak than ever before. A person with strong values is a person that can successfully influence everyone and potentially following along towards a better future. And that is what we all must do, regardless of who is talking. Because the people that really have the power to change things are the people that possess the capacity to listen. The people who are potential to be influenced by the influencer need to want to hear them out and listen to them. There has to be buy-in on both sides, or else we can get the typical modern bullshit of people engaging in an I-can-talk-louder-than-you contest. That's not fun, and not constructive at all. Civil discourse has to be civil, if you couldn't tell. It takes two to tango, and it takes two to argue about the effectiveness of the American Rescue Plan, or whatever. There must be mutual respect between opposing groups and values. If not... They quickly erode and degrade themselves into madness and pointless squabbling, where there is no winner, where no winner is declared except for the people that stay the fuck out of the way. And even then, are those people really thinking that they have something to celebrate? Odds are they do not. In order to not be one of those people, and to actually use your selective intolerance constructively, it must all start with you before you can impose that upon the world around you. Unlike a Ray Dalio book might tell you, you don't need to have a million and one principles in order to live your life and live it well. But you do need to apply some in different areas to have the best chance to navigate them. The topic of tolerance is very suggestive. It's one filled with landmines, ones that the mob on both sides are salivating for you to trip over. Navigating this field requires bravery, something that is lacking of supply as of late. For that, I'd like to turn our attention to quite possibly the bravest man in the world today, Douglas Murray is the associate editor at The Spectator, a member of the intellectual dark web, and the author of the book The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity. The book is arguably the most accurate portrayal of the current derangement of our society out there. It holistically encapsulates nearly all of the major issues surrounding our scourge of identity politics and tribalism and distills them all into one fine brew of about 250 pages. 
Douglas Murray is one of the very few people in the world who is willing to call the bullshit of the fake tolerant people and call them what they are in actuality, intolerant, much more so than they would want to admit. The Madness of Crowds is perhaps the single most inflammatory book I've ever read. Murray himself compared it to navigating a minefield just like above. However, what Murray was calling to was a call to collective sanity, a collective basking of our own intolerance based on our values, and then calling to be nice to those same people anyways. It's an incredibly empathetic piece of work when you look at it in actuality, one that collectively summarizes the worst in humanity and sees that we aim to forgive them for it. However, it doesn't mean that we should not do one thing. Tell the truth. That is the first principle. In the words of Jordan Peterson, there is something divine about speaking the truth in your speech. And he is right. The crowd, the mob, is a large inhibitor of this, and Murray explains why. Quote, The problem with going along with the crowd is that it demoralizes you. It makes you a smaller person inside. End quote. In the rest of that clip of his most recent appearance in the Joe Rogan experience, Murray leaves the aforementioned host speechless about a story of a greengrocer in Czechoslovakia by one of their prime ministers during their communist occupation. During that era of time, all greengrocers in the capital city of Prague had to hang a sign of their st on their store that said they were official state employees and that they had lost all autonomy in their business to the state authority, which is what communism is, by the way. It was just a sign in reality. But to Murray, and to everyone else, including the greengrocer, it was something else. A symbol of his subjugation. It was just a small thing. But it is a combination of these small things that grinds good, wholesome people into a fine powder of nothing that can be blown away to do or say almost anything. This is how totalitarian systems work, including the run that our, one that our ruling class currently inhabits. They make you tell lies. They make you choke on your own falsities and the things they want you to believe about yourself in order to erode your soul. They try to exhaust you make you cry uncle, and when you eventually do, they finally have you. But it also works in reverse. When you tell the truth, when you don't lie about who you are and what you believe, you become stronger. To quote Murray again, you should only value a small group of people because, in general, only that small group of people want the best for you. The masses, in large part, do not, because they do not know you well enough to care. The truth is the antidote to both the madness of the crowd and the solve that other people can use to help heal you. The truth is, by definition, intolerant. It doesn't care about anything else other than being right, because it is right. The more you arm yourself with that kind of power, the more you can use it to strengthen your own character enough to impose your identity on the world. More importantly, you need to be able to tell the truth to yourself, which is something incredibly difficult considering that you know yourself more than anyone else in the world but it is worth the effort to fight the crowd. Following on this point, it will force you to only care about the, those certain people that want the best for you. The beauty of your selective intolerance based on your values is that it will attract the shitty people that are similarly intolerant as you. We all choose our tribes, whether we want to admit it or not. Certain people gravitate towards one another because of the choices we make to determine those things. The group that you will find yourself being most in common with is usually the one that will be utterly despised and hated by another one. This is not your fault, usually. It's just the way the world works. We can choose what we value based on a myriad of factors, but that also delivers the freedom to anyone else to choose the exact opposite as you and hate you for it. But now things have gotten even more complicated. Now, with things like intersectionality blurring the lines even further, 
Even the slightest offense to another group that is in some way or another opposed to you by any diametric is a means for shellacking. The world is a merciless place and will beat you to your knees if you allow yourself to be exposed without protection. And that protection is the people around you. Your tribe, should you be lucky enough to get to choose one, can protect you if you tell the truth and expose your own intolerance. Because everyone is looking for a tribe. Everyone is intolerant in one way or another. Tolerance doesn't exist, remember? This will force you, whether you like it or not, to only care about the people that want the best for you. When people can fall into your own intolerance and accept you, you should reciprocate by doing the same for them. When someone is having a dispute with another person and are getting treated unjustly and unfairly, let the other person know that it is, it is unacceptable to treat another human being in the way that you are. Which is what leads me to my final point. A couple of months ago, I released a post about empathy and what it really means. Empathy can only be unleashed through a detachment of emotional circumstance. You must remove yourself from where you are in order to get where you would like to be in that particular situation. Your lesser emotions can betray you if you don't do this, and that is a very poor thing to have happen when someone is in need of your empathy. In realizing the intolerance of other people, and therefore the choices they make and the values that underlie those choices, you can allow the pathway of empathy to open. Empathy cannot be opened if you are judgmental towards people, particularly if you are judging them for things they did with good intentions. And, even if the road, is, road to hell is paved with them, that does not mean you get to determine their fate based on your own reckless narcissism. The problem with cancellation and critical theory being applied in mass around the culture, even though I think it's way less than the conservative media wants you to believe, and though it remains problematic, is that it remo removes this possibility of forgiveness. It removes the possibility of people being okay with other people because their opinions on various issues and topics are different. And this is a very, very bad idea. If you want another road to hell, look no further than the current madness of the times, as amplified by Murray and others. This path does not lead to acceptance and tolerance. This path leads to dehumanization and hatred. It leads to this because it forces you to divide human beings and human souls into tiers based on traits, most of which they cannot control. So I ask you, who are you to decide the worth of a human being based on their skin color, or their gender, or their sexual orientation? Or, for that matter, anyone that came before you who did not know the things that you know now? You can judge someone by their political beliefs, their personal or ideology, or their values, sure. But do you really want to try to dig into something that you have no hope in understanding? Do you want to play that game, really? Because I wouldn't. The problem with this ideology, and all ideologies, is simple. It removes the possibility of forgiveness from the equation. It only seeks to destroy and divide. It does not seek to see the better in humanity, only the worst. And, if we're all intolerant in our own ways, who's to say that we aren't all the worst? You might not think that you are, and you could be right. But to some people, you always will be. No matter how hard you try. So, what I would do is simply this. Bask in your selective intolerance and let other people be intolerant in their own ways. Be the bigger person and let someone else think that they are, too. Values are sometimes inconvenient, but always necessary. Being a non-value-neutral entity as a human being, you will naturally have a predisposition to be intolerant towards some group of people. In a society full of selectively intolerant people, the thing that prevents a culture from falling apart is realizing that selective intolerance is a necessity for humans to live a full life. Furthermore, encouraging selective intolerance through your actions and principles towards yourself and others 
will promote a general spirit of goodwill and provide a common thread for us all to weave into our souls to keep us together. It's very easy right now in our world to blame people for things. It's easy to cow to the mob in the name of tolerance, but we all know that this cannot be. Tolerance is a myth. Freedom is a lie. Only through the base of personal values can you truly embrace liberation and ensconce them that among your fellow citizens. And that is enough to leave most people truly speechless. Okay, everyone. That's my post for the week. That's my podcast for the week. Thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. Own the day. Open your mind. Watch the UFC tonight. I hope you guys have a great week. See you later. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?